You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Well, as Max said, today is 9-11, and I want to speak to that a little bit this morning, um, but not in a way that I ever have before. Um, I want to talk about some strange facts about 9-11 and use it as sort of a launch pad into a larger conversation. The fact is only a third of the World Trade Center employees showed up for work that day. I don't know if you know that. Um, I, I, stu- I looked online for verification of this. My, uh, I had a particular source, a scholar that did work on this and published on it. And that was my only source. I couldn't find other information. But based upon what I could see, only a third of the employees who worked at the World Trade Center showed up for work that day. An unusually large number of people called in sick or just didn't show up. 90 years earlier, something similar happened. Um, with the Titanic, an unusually large number of passengers canceled at the last minute for various reasons, but many of them simply because they got a bad feeling about the voyage. A study was conducted after 9-11 on people who lived in New York City, and it turns out hundreds of New Yorkers had dreams just before 9-11 of airplanes crashing into high-rise buildings. None of this is supposed to happen according to science, right? Premonitions, precognition, it's not real. Can't be real in a purely mechanistic and material universe. But these things do happen, it seems. And they happen to a lot of us. When I was 18, my grandfather died. And I remember the night it happened. I was out at a restaurant with friends. It was a Wednesday night. And we usually would go out for dinner after church, because of course I was in church every Wednesday night, like a good church boy. (laughs) And I remember, I can actually even picture the dining table and looking down it when I suddenly had this profound feeling of doom. I don't know, just like a really negative feeling came over me and I couldn't explain it. And I just brushed it aside. But then as soon as I got home, my parents told me the news that my grandfather had died and my mind immediately went back to that moment at dinner where I had this strange and profound feeling that something was wrong. About five years later, I had a similar experience. It was during a weekly prayer meeting I attended at someone's house. These meetings were extremely intense. They lasted for hours and they were usually on Friday nights. And so it, they were in the dark. We turned all the lights off of- in the house, and you could say it was really a kind of meditation we were engaging in, but it was prayer and worship. You know, we, of course, we wouldn't have called it meditation back then because we were evangelical fundamentalists and that sounded too new agey, but that's really what it was. Anyway, during this particular intense moment that night in that house, I saw the image, and this never happened to me before, I saw the image of a scalpel in my head, and I felt that I was supposed to like say that somebody here is going to have surgery and they're supposed to know it's going to be okay. Which seems strange to me because it was a room of about approximately 30 high school students, all of which knew each other. We knew everybody in the room. We would have known somebody was sick and was set to have surgery. I didn't know of anybody then, um, but I said it anyway. 
and no one responded. <laughs> Nobody said, hey, that was me, until three days, four days later, when this girl named Elsa, who's actually still friends with Emily and I, we just saw her in Portland um, a few, uh, I don't know, last month, a couple months ago. Like, keep in mind, this was 1999, the year 2000, when this happened. Elsa comes up to me and says um, that that was me. You were, I, I just walked in that night to the meeting. I hadn't been there for more than two minutes when you said that. And I hadn't told anybody this yet, but I was set to have hernia surgery this coming week. And I was having nightmares about it. And what you said gave me peace and this surgery went fine. Well, needless to say, I was absolutely floored. Right? I mean, who wouldn't be? Okay, just one more story. <laughs> Four years ago, when my brother Mark died, uh, he died of liver failure at the age of 37 from drug and alcohol addiction. But when he died, something strange happened. When the nurse took him off life support, she said he's probably going to die in the next 30 minutes. But he didn't. And he lasted for another 12 hours, which, which isn't the strange thing. That's not the strange thing, actually. What was strange was that he waited until we all left the room in order to die. After 12 hours sitting by his bedside, waiting for this death, we all kind of, meaning my siblings and my mother and I, kind of got, you know, as you do, tired. We were sitting there for 12 hours waiting for him to pass. And so we all agreed, okay, let's take a break. Um, some of us went home to change and shower. Others went to get something to eat. I got in an, on an airplane. I had to go to the airport because this was in Chicago and I had to come back to LA. Not more than 10 minutes after we all left the room, he died. And the nurse told us that's actually pretty common. She said, people routinely wait for their loved ones to leave the room before dying, even if they're heavily sedated and unconscious as Mark was. Somehow, some way, they are still aware of the presence of others and can decide when to let go and die, she said. Not me. This is the nurse. Now, no one knows how's that, how that's possible, right? We don't, we don't know how they're aware, and we don't know how anybody can just choose to like let go of consciousness or life. I don't know if it's even a conscious decision. I don't know. We don't know. But it's a commonly accepted phenomena among those in the medical field who work around dying people, that this happens on a regular basis. Now, what do all these stories share in common? Well, I could be wrong. I've been wrong before, and I could be this morning. But I think they're about the astonishing and mysterious nature of consciousness and how it may transcend the body and the brain, space, and time, and connect us to each other and to the world in ways we will never fully understand. And I share these stories with you this morning, not because they prove anything, because they don't. All of this could be mere coincidence, right? Me seeing a scalpel and somebody in the room, you know, of high school students set to have surgery and having nightmares about it. You know, even that could be a mere, mere coincidence. These stories don't prove anything. But who says they have to prove anything to be meaningful or true? The idea that they have to prove something in order to be meaningful or true is a modern assumption, and frankly, one that, that's kind of vapid, unimaginative, incurious, 
and frankly, kind of spiritually impoverished. And so I want to share these stories with you today. I've never shared these before, I don't think. I want to share these with you today because I think history and the world is chock full of stories like this, many of them more compelling than mine, actually. In fact, I would venture to say some of you or many of you have similar stories in your life, things that happen to you that you can't explain, but that seemingly or seem to indicate that reality is not what you thought it was. Such stories have the ability to cause, cause what we say ontological shock, which means that they shock us out of our understanding of reality. They subvert or challenge our understanding of what it means to be. What does it mean to exist? What does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to be conscious or here in this moment in space-time? These stories have the ability to subvert that, to shock, ontologically shock us out of our particular neat and tidy little worldview. And so I wanted to I wanted to share these stories and discuss this with you today, because I think as a community of people who are wondering what reconstruction might look like, what reconstruction might look like for us in a post-evangelical or perhaps even post-Christian or post-theistic context, I think these experiences and phenomena can help us do that. And we never really talk about this here because we like to be very scientific. <laughs> But I think we should. We should give these experiences and these stories some space here. Let them speak. And to be clear, I think these experiences are both deconstructive and reconstructive. They're just not reconstructive. I think they're also deconstructive. And by that, I mean they're deconstructive of the strict materialism that's so popular today. What is strict materialism, you might be wondering? Well. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's this idea or this belief, it is a belief, it's this belief that there is nothing immaterial or transcendent about reality, matter, space, and time. It's all just stuff. Everything is just stuff, mindless, passive stuff. If you ask a strict materialist, how then does, does non-living stuff create or give birth to living and conscious beings like us, the answer you'll probably get is something called the multiverse theory or the anthropic principle, which is this idea, a metaphysics or a belief that there are an infinite number of universes in existence right now, an infinite number of universes, each with its own unique physics and chemistry. And our particular universe just happened to win the cosmic lottery. In an infinite number of universes, they say it makes sense that eventually there would be a universe like ours with just the right calibration of physics and chemistry in order to allow life and conscious beings like us to come exist on its own. Now, keep in mind, we have no, we have no direct evidence of these infinite universes. And of course, we don't have any evidence of their physics and chemistry. The multiverse theory is pure conjecture and therefore a belief in a metaphysics and arguably, arguably not a more rational one than one that says we living and conscious beings are pretty good evidence that there are transcendent or emergent qualities to the material universe. 
to be clear, I am not appealing to a kind of theism here this morning. That's not the point here. I'm not trying to back you know, usher God in through the back door. I think paranormal experiences deconstruct not just strict materialism, but religion too, and particularly conservative or fundamentalist religions and their understanding of theism that frankly operate a lot like a kind of strict materialism. Fundamentalism, conservative religions try just like strict materialists do, they try to domesticate everything into their particular worldview and try to assign everything into their neat little categories so that they can have a sense of mastery, so that they can have a sense of control over what is fundamentally uncontrollable and unknowable. For example, a conservative or a fundamentalist would label paranormal experiences as either angelic or demonic as either the work of God or the work of Satan. Or they would take such experiences as proof of a spirit world or proof that their particular God, their particular deity exists. I mean, that's how I in, in, initially interpreted that experience in that house that night, seeing the scalpel. Oh, this proves that you know God exists, my particular God, and my particular Christian understanding of God. That was Jesus telling me that, right? But I think these experiences actually deconstruct such myopic and narrow points of view because they are trans-religious, they are trans-religious or non-religious in nature, meaning they don't fit within a particular religious context or any, or any religious context, perhaps. They don't just happen to Christians or Muslims or Hindus. They happen to non-religious people too, these paranormal experiences. I also feel like I need to say that I am not invoking a kind of supernaturalism here. I no longer believe in the supernatural, per se, but I'm very open to the paranormal, and I'll explain what I mean by that. The word supernatural and the way that we use it comes from, probably comes from the 13th century, so the 1200s. And it was fashioned in order to mean non-natural events or events that occur in the natural physical world, but are caused by beings or forces outside the physical world, you know, in a kind of spirit world beyond, like God or angels or demons. The medieval church came up with that category or the word supernatural because it was necessary from their point of view to delineate between the supernatural and what we might call the paranormal. Now, the word paranormal didn't exist back then. That's the word paranormal is about 100 years old. I'm using it as a kind of shorthand here. Um, but paranormal means, in this context, events and experiences that are outside the norm, but are not outside the natural world. They're not outside the natural world. The, the natural world is extremely strange. <laughs> Bodies and minds, very weird. Nature's very weird. Does a lot of weird things. So when I say paranormal, often that can be seen as a synonym for supernatural. Supernatural is otherworldly, but something else intervening into this physical realm. Paranormal is about this realm here and now, things about it being strange or odd or abnormal. Paranormal means beyond normal. 
So the medieval church wanted to delineate between, we would say, the paranormal and the supernatural so they could identify which events are divinely caused, which, which events are truly divine and divinely caused, and which are just basically nature doing what nature does, which is weird. Strange things happen all the time. The church admitted that. But are they all from God? Is it just nature being nature, minds being minds, or is this the work of God? That was what they were trying to do when they came up with the term supernatural. But I think that bifurcation was a huge mistake, this bifurcation between this world and the next. One of many mistakes the medieval church was guilty of, right? But a mistake, a big mistake nonetheless, because by doing so, the medieval church pushed the divine out of the natural world to a great degree, relegating God or the divine or the sacred into the next world or the other world. And thereby, the church not only set the stage for this battle between faith and science that we see in modernity, but the church also set the stage for the kind of strict materialism we see today, this idea that you know, everything is just stuff, and it's, it's mindless, passive stuff. There's nothing emergent or transcendent about nature or, or matter. That's strict materialism, which the church, ironically, set the stage for, even created when they came up with this idea of the supernatural and divested this realm of something transcendent, we would say. So I'm rejecting both supernaturalism and strict materialism, but not the paranormal, because I think, again, nature's really weird. We're really weird as elements of nature. We don't even know what bodies are. What are bodies? What are brains? What are minds? We don't have any answers for this stuff. We don't, we don't even know what the intrinsic nature of anything is. Once you start going down that, that path and ask questions, what is an electron? Actually, really, these are ontological questions, philosophical questions. We don't know. Science isn't there actually to tell us what the intrinsic nature of things are. It's there to tell us what things do. It's really good at that. We're blessed to live in the modern world because of it. Don't think that science can tell you ontologically what things are. I tend to think only conscious beings can do that because we recognize transcendence when we see it. So I'm rejecting both supernaturalism and strict materialism, but not the paranormal because I think nature is really weird. And I think there's something emergent and sacred and divine about nature itself. This is also called imminence, this idea that the sacred, the divine, whatever you want to call it, it's here and now in this natural world. And by transcendent and emergent, I mean that these, th these ideas that I'm talking about, they, they transcend, they go beyond our categories. We don't have categories for this stuff. To put it another way, I don't believe in the supernatural, but my hunch is that the natural is super. Does that make sense? I don't believe in the supernatural, but my hunch is the natural is pretty super. I'm suggesting that paranormal and mystical experiences are part of the natural order of things and are just matter doing what matter does and minds doing what minds do, and that's awesome. 
And again, for me, this is both deconstructive and reconstructed. We've we've looked how it's deconstructed. We look we've looked at how it's deconstructive, but I think it's reconstructive too because it has a way of I'll even use this term it reenchants. It reenchants this world with mystery and transcendence and awe and wonder. What's reconstructed is not something really specific like a like a certain deity or a certain set of religious dogmas or doctrines or confessional beliefs, but a sense of mystery and transcendence and awe and wonder is reconstructed. I really think this view is necessary for a lot of people today, myself included, who have undergone deconstruction and have, you know, and are left feeling like, or left wondering, is this really the whole story? Deconstruction, is that really it? And don't get me wrong, I, I still love this message, which you've heard me preach many times. In the wake of the cross, in the wake of the death of God, in the wake of the death of religion, in the wake of the death of all certainty, we now embrace love. The love of others and the love of life and the love of this world, despite its innate difficulties and uncertainties and troubles. And in that radical embrace of love and life, the world and even death, we find resurrection, we find serenity, we find the courage to be, the courage to be and to go on and to live lives of love. I love that message. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I believe in that message still as a source of healing and hope and joy and, and meaning which is basically the message of radical theology, the school of thought that has influenced me more than any other. But that's not the whole message, I think. I'm not convinced that's the whole message. Part of what I think it means to embrace life in the world, as it really is, part of what I think it means to embrace life in the world and reality as it actually is, is to embrace its innate, transcendent, and emergent qualities which is to say that life in the world transcends or goes beyond our categories and thereby invites us into a place of awe and wonder and possibility. I'm saying let's really, let's embrace that here too. Let's not just embrace deconstruction. You know, we've, we've gotten really good at deconstructing things over the years, right? We're really good at that. I think, I think we're really good at that. We're really good at taking things apart, but not so good at putting them back together. And to be fair, some things should not be put back together, yes? Some things shouldn't be, let's be honest. But I don't think deconstruction is the end of the story. To me, one of the main points, if not the main point of deconstruction, is to see if there's anything left worth hanging on to, and I think there absolutely is, things like love and community and mystery and transcendence and awe and wonder, those things are worth hanging on to. That to me is what reconstruction can look like here. And I think our so-called mystical and paranormal experiences are a part of that and can help us do that. First Corinthians chapter 11, 
verse 23 says this, for I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The word of the Lord. Let us receive communion now as Max leads us in song. Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. First of all, thank you for talking about reconstruction, because I think that's so important in, as people who are deconstructing, have deconstructed, putting something else that's healthy and life-giving in place of what we've gotten rid of is, I think, the next step. Like, we have to do that, or we're doomed to, like, depression, (laughs) you know? It depends um, on the individual. Some no, yeah. you're right. I think for a lot of us, just 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 deconstruction is not like yeah. that life giving. Yeah, yeah. So thank you. Um, I think part of my reconstruction that I've been doing recently has been learning about science, because growing up in uh, I was homeschooled in an evangelical home. And so I didn't really learn science, <laughs> at least. Or you learned a particular kind. Yeah, I learned um, creationism, yeah. not evolution. And uh, just learning about science is is awe-inspiring for me. Like I, I see the divine and God all over science, in evolution, in, you know, all of this. I recently read a book, uh, like seven basic lessons of physics it's like super thin supposed to be easy to understand and it is awe-inspiring what we know and what we don't know and like you were saying like yeah there's electrons and then there's quarks but there's something smaller than that that we don't understand yet so i think that is amazing to think about that you know it could this um paranormal that you're talking about exist in that is whatever that is that we don't understand yet you know that's kind of what i think um yeah and then i've i've definitely i 100% believe in ghosts and like spirits and all that stuff <laughs> um and one kind of experience that i've had that didn't have to do with ghosts or anything. But when I was a teenager, I had a dream that I was like coming out of a tent and there was people sitting at 
a picnic bench and I didn't know any of those people. And then a year later, I was involved in a youth group and they took us on a camping trip. And one morning I woke up, got out of my tent and all those people that I didn't know the year before when I dreamed it were there. And I was like, oh, I saw this. <laughs> so that's, that's happened a couple of times where I've dreamed things and then they happen a year or two later. And I don't know why, why was that significant? I don't know, but yeah, so that's me. I think it's beautiful. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Me give space to that here, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, could you pass it to Anne? So many thoughts. Um, like, if we had been sitting, having coffee, and you were talking about this, I would have you been would have interrupting you every five seconds. Yeah, that's cool. Something. <laughs> Interrupt me now. So, so I'll, I'll try to, I'll try to like gather some things. Could you, um, could you uh, just talk a little louder or hold the mic? Thank oh, you. sure. Yeah. Um, I'll start with an experience that I had. Um, my mother passed away about four years ago. And um, she was a devout, devout Christian. I was raised like everyone else here, almost probably in a very evangelical home. And my she she was at home on hospice, and we're all it's clear that she's about to die. We're all gathered around her bed, and um, just being with her, not praying, not doing anything, just being with her. And a few days earlier, let me, I have to backtrack a bit. So my brother passed away about 20 years prior um, at age 39, hepatitis C from drug and alcohol abuse, um, drug abuse in that case. Um, and he, um, he had a friend that he had grown up with who was, you know, close to our family back in the day when he was young named Mike. And Mike had gone to prison. He had become a Christian in prison, had been writing letters to my mother, stayed in contact with her 20 years prior passing. And so I had not seen or spoken to Mike in 30 years, probably. A few days before my mother passed, Mike reaches out on Facebook and says, hey, how you doing? no idea that my mom is is ill and so I said well I'm in town my mother is um on hospice and he says oh I would love to come and see her so he's gonna come and see her at some point random so we're all gathered around my mother's bedside the doorbell rings and it's Mike he comes into the room she's totally unconscious and he says hi Miss Meredith um, this is Mike Morris. I'm here to be with you. And he sits with us. It's a little awkward because we hadn't seen him in many, many years, but still he was there. Then for some reason, my dad gets up, leaves the room for a minute and she passes. And it was like she was waiting for my dad to leave the room. But plus the fact that my brother's proxy in a way was there in the room was what she needed it was just it was crazy you know because there was no reason for mike to be there um so that's a story 
um, you know, this idea that you're talking about and that you mentioned on Facebook this week also about this. Um, a lot of what I talk about on Sundays is often posted on Facebook. I know. As I I'm, like the as previews. I'm mulling it around during the week. Yes. <laughs> um, about this bifurcation between supernatural and the natural world in the 13th century and everything. Um, a thought that came up while you were preaching was, I'm curious your thoughts on um, ancient Judaism. So ancient Judaism clearly had a supernatural outside of the natural realm God, but their theology also was very much about what what they're praying for and what they're experiencing of God is purely in this world. Like they didn't have a strong th thought of afterlife or anything like that. And it seems like this, this divide in a way of what are your thoughts on that? That's a really good observation. My initial thoughts are, I haven't thought about that. <laughs> um, you're right to point out that dichotomy. Their cosmology was, um, the, the ancient Near Eastern cosmology was shared not just by the ancient Israelites, but their neighbors, like Sumerians, Akkadians, Babylonians, was this idea that we literally, you know, the sky was like a dome, um, kind of firmament. And above that, some uh, different levels. But the idea was above that was like the realm of the gods or, you know. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, there was this idea that, you know, the gods were up there, literally up there beyond like transcendent right in another but it's like their experience was completely materialistic yes but their experience yeah and but they didn't have this kind of otherworldly expectation that they were going to go to heaven when they died and especially there wasn't read the old testament you don't find them talking about the afterlife really in fact what's mentioned is like sheol right that word like david says you know who can praise you O lord in sheol which means the grave you know uh when, when we die we go to oblivion was the idea and who, who could who could know anything in sheol or oblivion right um if that was the, his that was the psalmist david but the psalmist whoever wrote that that was their understanding of the afterlife <laughs> pretty bleak right um but, and yet these were devout people obviously who believed in a deity um that was i think as you put it like transcendent beyond meaning not just i'm not talking about permeating reality but maybe they did i don't know I'm saying I don't really know how to answer that question. <laughs> it's a really great question. Um, but, you know, I, I guess my, my mind goes right into the incarnation of Christ. You know, as, obviously, Jesus comes out of that tradition. But this idea in the, in the early Jewish Christian sect called the Way, the first Christians, this idea of God being incarnated in this world and, and being with us and now as a Holy Spirit, you know, this idea of in him we live and move and have our being. I mean, that's Paul. That's Acts chapter 17. Um, in him we live and move and have our being. There's this pantheistic, you know, view of the divine right there in our own scriptures, in the incarnation. God is here, Emmanuel, with us, not somewhere out there. We are the temples of the Holy Spirit. We are the body of God, the body of Christ in the world. These are original christian ideas and we think you know it sounds so new agey now to us to talk panthe pantheistically or paranormally we would say or that you know that that the divine is imminent or, you know it's literally here now it's not somewhere else it's here there is no out there there's only here this but this is full of depth and divinity 
that's, you know, in a sense, what we're doing is we're kind of reclaiming a primitive Christian understanding of the divine when we talk like this. We, you know, evangelicals hear this conversation, like ah, a bunch of new agey, woke, leftist, progressive Christians. Like, no, we're being true to the text. These ideas are not new. None of these ideas are new. This is basically Plato as well, you know, located in Greek thought, which, by the way, Paul was actually quoting when he said, in him we live and move and have our being. He was quoting a Greek poet, a Greek philosopher, and agreeing with it. Anyway, that's a whole other, that's not a whole other sermon, what we're talking about. That's how I'd answer your question, if that's an answer. I don't know if that's an answer. That's where my mind goes with all that. Yeah. Um, one last thing, and then I'll pass the mic on. Yeah. Um, uh, in context of what Jim was saying about reconstruction, like, I think I agree, like, reconstruction is a huge thing, and it's not a matter of reconstructing some variation of our former faith, but we are inherently meaning-making beings. We're always looking for meaning, so whether that meaning is found in you know, the awe of science, you know, I I have a 24-year-old who's definite atheist, but is just fascinated by science all the time. He's seen something, whether he wants to acknowledge it or not. Well, and I'm not saying he's seen God, but he's seen something transcendent. That's yes. what fascinates him about it. Yes. And so I think, I think reconstruction means a lot of different things to a lot of different people but we we all have to look for some kind of meaning or we fall into that depression like the hopelessness of there's no point at all to anything yeah i absolutely agree and next week we're going to talk more about this this is not just like a one-week thing um the next two weeks we're going to dive more into this and i'm just going to specifically use christina cleveland's book god is a black woman next week to speak to this idea of us being meaning-making machines, as you put it, and us needing to reconstruct on new stories and new understandings of God that work for us. Um, and we'll talk more about that next week. And Christina Cleveland's book has been really influential on me in that regard. But we're talking about reconstructing, as you put it, not on, a, not on the old, you know, wineskin, so to speak, to draw upon, you know, the text. We're not, we're not putting, you know, uh, you know, we're not using the old wineskin and the old wine. We're talking about reconstructing really on, on mystery and awe and transcendence and wonder and, and the experience of being alive and love. We're reconstructing on love and, and, what we, and new stories that we find meaning and what gives you meaning, what gives you a sense of meaning. Wow, that's what we should be reconstructing. And that looks different to each of us. And that's what's wonderful about it. We get to, you know, hear that and, and revel in that. And that's beautiful. And we need to do that here more. I think. I feel like we do have to do that. Anyway, all right, good, good stuff. Anybody else? Got, got a few more minutes. Yeah. Um, and would you pass the mic to Brian, please? Hi. <clears throat> okay, I'm kind of uh, a little nervous. I never. <laughs> could you hold the mic a little closer to your mouth, Brian? Thank sure. Um, so I'm, can you hear me? Is everything working? Uh, I, I guess I've, those of you who have seen me before, I'm the atheist who goes to church. Um, <laughs> I'm, I guess I'd say I believe in God at this point, but I don't believe in Jesus yet. Um, <clears throat> my background is I used to do artificial intelligence uh, pretty heavily. So I got 
awards for being the first guy to do speech recognition on a computer. I went to Apple and created the consumer products division when Apple was about to go under. I did a lot of early work in virtual reality. And it, it's really hard to be in artificial intelligence for a very long time without starting to ponder intelligent design because it's kind of in your job description. <laughs> you know, you're, you're spending the entire day trying to create intelligent beings inside the computer, especially when you work in, in virtual reality and AI. So I would go in and I would literally create a universe, create a world, create trees and vegetation and create various forms of animals with various sorts of knowledge bases attached to them and various forms of autonomy. Uh, and, and you kind of, you start realizing that I just took everything that describes this being out of this computer, put them onto a backup tape, moved it over to another similar computer and run it. But every single atom in that other computer is still over in the other computer. And all the energy in that computer is still over in the other computer. So you hit run. Actually, I had voice recognition, so I could literally say the word run <laughs> and bring them all back up. I could also hit pause and look through every single place. So their timeline is frozen. And I can go and see what every single one of them is doing, what they're thinking, look through their knowledge base, make changes if I wanted to. Um, so I could literally be in all places at the same time, even though in my reality, <laughs> I, I can't. So there's a, I don't think, you know, and, and they have quantization because it's a computer, just like, you know, when you're talking about what's inside of an atom, you know, they're now looking at quantum mechanics and all of that sort of stuff. Um, I don't necessarily think that, in fact, I'm pretty sure that's not the way God did it. But when you're working on it, it makes you really think about a lot of things. Materialism goes right out the door because every computer science, the hottest technologies, you know, the, the hottest sciences in this century, in the 21st century, are all non-materialistic sciences. You know, uh, computer science, yeah, there's computer engineering where you build the computer, but computer science is all about algorithms and information and data processing and artificial intelligence. And, you know, how much does an algorithm weigh? Nothing. How much, how much energy does it have? None. You, you can't even envision how you would hook up an electrode to information or algorithms or software or any of that stuff. So there is no material anything inside of computer science and there's not, nothing in now there's synthetic biology where we're creating new things by genetically engineering things from scratch so it's all, all of the the 21st century hot sciences are all non-materialistic and they're all intelligent designs okay so i just kind of want to say that that's that's what brought me to this church in the first place was just kind of trying to figure out, okay, if there is intelligent design, which is obvious because we're doing it in science now, then 
is it the same intelligent design as is in the Bible? Or is it some other type of intelligent design? I don't know. Okay. So I, I, I just come here to, cool. you know, get the brain restarted. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, no, it's good to hear that. And thank you for your, your musings. Uh, good stuff. Anybody else this morning? Yeah, Jason. Thanks, Brian. It's a team effort. Yeah. I just uh, wanted to say how much nicer it is or to hold, hold the mic up. Would you sorry, sorry. Go ahead. How much nicer is it to imagine that when you have these kind of premonitions or like, you know, God told me to say this type thing that it's really all of us, you're just kind of like hearing all of us versus like God told you. I just think that's so much nicer, uh, more affirming way of looking at the world. That's a great point. Yeah, you're right. I think that is nicer. I agree. And that's kind of how I think about it. Um, rather than yeah, thinking of a being somewhere out there told me to tell you this, that you know, we won't get further into that. But that's that's a great understanding of God. I think. Yeah, what you just said. Uh, all right, good stuff, everybody. Well, yeah, it's eleven twenty-two. We can conclude. It's not that we have to go to eleven thirty. Uh, but yeah, we're going to continue this conversation um, over the next couple of weeks and look at it in different ways from different points of view. But um, again, um, thanks for being here. And uh, Bob, I think uh, we have that slide with our little benediction on it. There it is. That's great. We like to finish our time together saying this, this benediction together as a way of centering ourselves. Let's do this now. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love honesty and humility we dedicate ourselves as christ did to the cause of justice and to the courageous embrace of this life this world and each other amen thanks for being here everybody and see you next week mm -hmm.